0: Love getting out in the snow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, this is what we call the knot tying service. Gotta finish it up, tie a knot in it. Now, uh, my wife's at the Nashville airport waiting on me right now. Drove up from Chattanooga. She was going to go back with me. Then we weren't. Then we were. Then we weren't. And we we are. So I'm going to meet here at the Nashville airport. We're going to drive to Memphis tonight so we can get my daughter's car back. I got to speak at a church tomorrow night over in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And we were talking, she, and she I love her. She said, now, Joe, you make sure you finish strong. <laughs> well, honey, I was kind of planning on slacking off tonight. You know, it's kind of snowy and cold. And I'm going to wear my jeans. She knows I'm joking. But anyhow, I was coming back from uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, Vietnam war, war was winded down, and uh, I got my draft notice. And I come from a big military family, and uh, all my uncles got me and said, well, said, so we're going to get you signed up in the Army Reserve, and uh, and I signed up, and got signed up to artillery, artillery school, so I went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky for basic, went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for uh, artillery, flying back, Chattanooga, after I finished my eight weeks out there, and I've got my dress green uniform on, and uh, Memphis has got a lot of military bases, naval bases in Memphis, of all places, and uh, got a Marine base there, and uh, so I'm sitting there in the airport waiting to catch my plane, and I'm excited to go home, had been home in eight weeks, and I've got on my dress green uniform. I got my national defense ribbon. I've got my expert badge. I was an expert with M sixteen. I really like M sixteen. Uh, that's a fun weapon to shoot until somebody shoots back at you. Yep, squirrels, and deer, and rabbits don't shoot back. People do. Just a thought for you. Anyhow. I'm sitting there and this young Marine sits down next to him and he was coming back from Vietnam, going home to visit his family and uh, and the number one his uniform's beautiful. The marine uniform just is just gorgeous, you know. And he's sitting there, and he, he's got a rainbow hanging off his chest. I mean, he, he's, he didn't look that old, but he's got some stuff. And now I'm in a military family, but I never ask a lot of questions. So, you know, I just hear my uncles tell stories, and I'm trying not to stare at him, kind of looking, you know, kind of, man, he's got a lot of stuff, and finally he caught me looking, and I, and I felt embarrassed, and so I'm sorry to be staring at you, and just, well, what is all that stuff on your chest? And so, well, these are, these are campaigns I've been sent into, and he basically went through them, and, in a summary statement he said we went here and whipped them went here whipped them went here whipped them went here, them, went here about got whipped but we finally whipped them, whipped them whipped them whipped them whipped them and whipped them and i remember i sit there just kind of embarrassed i said well, i signed up <laughs> and i remember how embarrassed i felt to wear my uh, my dress green uniform with nothing but that one ribbon they give you that red and yellow national defense just for signing up and i remember how embarrassed i was like good lord get this off of me or get me something on here you know, get me somewhere where i can whip something, get some on here. i got to take this off. This is embarrassing to walk around men who put their life on the line, and I've just signed up. You know, it's a guy thing. And, uh, you know, you go to somebody's house, and they'll tell you, shot that, kill that, beat that to death. Well, you come to my house. I shot that, kill that, and I'll beat that to death. And that's bigger than what you shot, killed, and beat to death. Well, if you think that's something, come out of the garage. I shot that, killed that, and I beat that to death. You know, we're always trying to do something bigger than the other guy. But I can think about sitting in church one day. When I get to heaven, I get my rewards for what I've done here on this planet. And I don't want to be embarrassed because that lasts forever. I don't want to get there and, you know, be like the guy in 1 Corinthians 3 who all of his reward got burned up because basically he was a thumbsucker through life. Now, everybody has challenges, all of us, all going to have to believe God for money and work and, you know, believe God for good bosses and good employees and open doors of opportunity and more business. That's what we get to do. We get to use our faith to just live by faith. It's an adventure. And so we got to make sure we don't get caught up complaining about our daily life. God's an adventurous God. He's trying to do stuff for us, but are we looking for? And I don't know how you are, but I know I've been there before when all of a sudden something great would happen. I got to thinking, well, now how long was I gripping before I started believing God and something happened? Could this have happened earlier? I remember when I got married, Denise said uh, uh, two weeks into our marriage, we were talking about how many kids we wanted, and she wanted five. And I said, fine. And I remember several months later, we were talking. She said, now, Joe, when we began to have children, all of our kids would go to college because none of our family had been to college. And uh, I said, fine, fine with me. We'll send them to college. I mean, how much pressure is it? We don't even have a kid yet. And if we do, it'll be 18 years where they go, and I, I feel no pressure. Well, the kids begin to come, you know, like rainwater out of heaven, and they're starting to get older. And I remember as Sarah went into uh, her high school year, uh, when it was a sophomore year, freshman was part of the junior high. Denise said, now, Joe, you know, Sarah's going to college in three years. Where's she going to go and how are we going to pay for it? Well, at this time, I'm trying to buy a bigger vehicle so we all have something to ride in. I need a Suburban, not a pickup truck. You know, I need more bedrooms and tennis shoes and braces on three crooked sets of teeth. They're outgrowing their clothes, especially as females. They want nicer clothes and other stuff and perfume, you know, and earrings, and they want to get their hair done. I mean, I go to a barbershop. I pay $12. They want to go and pay 80 and, and I thought, oh, my Lord, you know, in college, college, and I was already starting to think about retirement. I got to start saving some money. College, how am I going to pay for college? And so I remember thinking, I got to do something. So I began to investigate, you know, where they could go. And I thought, well, they'll go over here to Oklahoma State. They've got a campus in Tulsa. And then they said, no, they're not going to Oklahoma State. They, they're going to go over here to Oral Roberts University, which is in Tulsa. Well, that's a private school. Oral Roberts University, why are they going there? Because it's a better school. I want them to go to that school. And I said, well, we don't need to send them there. That's a private school. That's expensive. We we can get them in Oklahoma State about 1800 a year. I don't know how much that is over there. She said it's $8,700 a year. Well, we're not sending them there. I said it just out loud. We're Why not? We're on. I believe that's where God wants them to go. <laughs> and they better get a job and pay for it. You know how men can get. We protect ourselves by getting arrogant and loud. Well, you know, I married to a good woman, so she didn't back up. She said, well, you better figure it out because that's where they're going. Well, I realized, oh dear God, you know, and because uh, she wouldn't kiss me for a few days, and she's mad. I like kissing her, and uh, just try to be honest. And so, uh, well, I got to do something. So I began to investigate. So I went over, over up to University and, and, uh, and met some people, and you know, tried to find out how do you apply, and how do you get scholarship, what's available, can you get government loans, and where, where do you get money to, to come to this expensive place? And, uh, and I began to pick up some books and read, and I realized, well. Uh, and one of the books I read said, go meet somebody at the financial aid office, because usually people who work in the financial aid office of a university are mothers or fathers, usually mothers who are working there so their kids can go for free. Because usually if you work in the university, that your children go for free. And sure enough, I went to the financial aid or up to university, and there were 18 women working in the financial aid, and all of them are moms. And I happened to know one. I met one. Her name is Barbara. And I thought, hey, Barbara. said, what do you do? So, well said, well, I'm here because my two sons are going to the college here, and they go for free if I work here. Now, she's working for minimum wage. But she didn't have to pay the $8,500 a year for her two kids for four years. So that's a good $80,000, you know, swap out. And uh, I said, well, I'm interested. You know, I'm, I've got kids coming. She says, well, how many kids are you planning on sitting here? I said, I don't know. I guess six. I said, I need some help. I need to know where can I get some money and some scholarship. And so she began to tell me what I could fill out and where I could go and what I can do. And, uh, and she said, well, you know, most scholarships are based on the ACT-SAT test. I said, that test you take your senior year. She said, yeah, but you really ought to take it your junior year. You ought to back up and kind of practice because you're not trying to pass the test. You're trying to get a high score. Heathens give you money for a high score. I thought, oh, I never thought about that. I just tried to pass it so I could get in. And so then she began to say, we also have scholarship money that kids win, but they don't show up and take it, and we have to disperse it to other people. I said, well, who gets it? She said, well, whoever asked for it. I said, now explain that to me again. There are kids who get scholarship money to come here from other organizations, but if they don't show up, the university gets the scholarship money and they get to keep it, Uh uh-huh, and you give it to who? Whoever asked for it. Well, I mean, do you have to fill out a form to ask for it? No, you just come in and ask for it. We've got a yellow pad, and you just sign your name. And I was the 18th parent to sign my name on a yellow pad to ask for extra scholarship money. We got some, by the way. And so I remember I went over and I met another school administrator who used to uh, be involved in college recruiting. I said, how do you get kids into college and get scholarship money? And he began to help me out, and so basically it was a three-year process, but I began to get some scriptures, put them on a yellow pad and an eight-and-a-half to 11-piece of paper, and I had them on a corkboard in the kitchen. And it was about favor. God, I thank you, surround my children, to show the divine favor. People like them, that don't even know why. You're going to open doors, no man shut, and shut doors no man can open. I want my kids to go to college on scholarship because my wife wants it. She wants it. I want it. We're going to set ourselves in agreement. We're going to believe for that. Well, for three years, we began to pray for scholarship money. Well, now, my oldest daughter's a straight-A student. She always was. And I thought, well, there's going to be no problem here except in algebra. She kept flunking algebra. So we had to go to summer school because you can't pass the ACT test unless you know algebra 2 because the math on the ACT test is all algebra 2. There's no trigonometry. There's no calculus. It's algebra 2. So, man, we can't do this. We've got to pass algebra 2. We've got to get that score up. And then I'm beginning to realize, well, let's just start early. So you can take the PACT and the PACT starting in the seventh grade. So I just made my kids take it. Starting in seventh grade, you're going to take the PACT and the PSAT. What for? Because you're going to college. How do you know? Mom said so. My kids asked me one time, did God tell you that? I said, no, mom did. Second best thing. Mom told me, you're going. And also, long story short, um, my fourth daughter will graduate in May. And um, between the the four of them, uh, how you add the scholarship money versus the low rate loan stuff we got was just a little over $150,000. And so... uh, when the test gets out, we'll owe $5,400 out of four kids still. That's it. All went to a private university. Two went to Oral Roberts, two went to Lee University. Both very expensive schools. But we won't owe them any money come May. Why? We start, believing scholarship money. For how long? Three years. And I'll let you know something. Until Sarah enrolled, I didn't see one dime of that money. She enrolled, and uh, she got uh, half off on her ACT test, so she was real smart. She worked at the daycare center for half a day to pay for the other half of her tuition. They both lived at home and drove back and forth to campus. Well, Jessica started in the next year, and it's like, well, you know, what, what are we going to do for her? Because she's not a straight-A student. She's a B student at best, and they don't give scholarship for Bs. Uh, well, maybe we can get her on a basketball scholarship. So we kept going over and asking so we can kind of get a basketball scholarship. And Jessica was a good basketball player. She was honorable mention all state her junior year. She was a three point shooting champion in the state of Oklahoma her senior year. She scored more three point shots than anybody. She was good, but she wasn't fast. Jessica's quick but not fast. And she's short, five foot six. And so most division one colleges aren't looking for a five foot six player unless you're just incredibly good. And Jessica's good but not incredibly good. Well we're believing God, so finally Just in time to start college, Sarah's going with, we got half a scholarship, she's got half a job, and they're waiting in the maybe Center, which is the big 10,000-seat auditorium at Oral Roberts University campus because their car's transmission had gone out on the way to college that day. So they're waiting in the lobby of this big gymnasium after college, waiting on their mother to come pick them up. Well, I'm already out of money. Transmission shot. It was a good used car, but the transmission shot. I'm going to have to buy another transmission. Well, there's some money. I don't have any scholarship money for Jessica yet, and that bill's coming due in three weeks. We're into college for one week. i got to pay in 30 days. Now, like, Where's that money going to come from? I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. Well, I'm believing God for three years for scholarship money. For three years, I've confessed it, prayed it sometimes in faith, sometimes with great doubt. You ever pray for something like, dear God, that's never going to happen. And I out of prayed up. <laughs> ain't no way that's going to happen. And I have to watch. The Bible says, put a guard on your mouth. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Man, it was, it's an exercise. And I just had to keep my mouth shut. I'd think stupid, but I wouldn't say it. Well, I just thank God my kids are going on scholarship. Praise God. This is great. Praise God. People are calling us and giving us money. Thank you, Jesus. How much do I need to write a check for? All right. Praise God. Yeah, praise God. Well, Uh, that day they're waiting on their mother to pick them up. They're sitting in the baby center and all of a sudden out of the double doors, of that big 10,000 seat auditorium comes a fellow high school student that went to high school with, who's also in college. And all the administrative offices are in the basement of the baby center. And he comes up, Hey, Sarah, Jessica, how you doing? Hey, how you doing?
1: What are you doing here?
0: Well, the transmission went out on her car and we're waiting on the mother to pick us up. It's hot day, about 102. And, uh, so they're talking a little bit and all of a sudden he asked my oldest daughter, Sarah said, Sarah, didn't you apply for a scholarship last year for the athletic department? She said, yes, but some college professor's kid got it. He said, well, I work for the athletic director. That's how I got my scholarship. I'm sort of his gopher. And he just told me we have an opening for a writer uh, for sports information. And it pays half scholarship. And I'm supposed to set up some interviews tomorrow. Are you still interested in that scholarship? She said, well, yes, I am. He said, well, would you like to talk to him? Well, sure. When? Tomorrow? Summer? No, he's still down there. I can take it down right now. He's still down there in the office. He says, sure, can I bring Jessica? Sure, bring her. So he goes down. Sarah goes in. He introduces her to the athletic director of Old Roberts University. So this is Sarah McGee, and I went to school with her. She's a straight-A student. You know, she's on the basketball team over there, and she's applied for a scholarship. And so he talked to her for about an hour, and they're just visiting, laughing, carrying on. And the last two questions he asked her was, have you ever uh, worked on a yearbook staff? Now, I didn't let my kids take any study hall, ever, no study hall. I'm sending you a private school. You're going to do something. I don't pay you to sit there. And so I made Sarah her senior year because she had taken all the courses. Uh, worked for uh, the yearbook staff. I said, they need help. Yearbook comes out late every year. You go help them. Well, she's a senior, but she's the low man on the totem pole. But she did work and said, have you ever worked on the yearbook staff? She said, yes, I have. Now, he didn't ask any detail. He didn't know it was just for one year or senior year. Well, do you know how to run a pra- uh, program called PageMaker, which is what Oral Roberts University used for all their writing? Do you know how to run a program called PageMaker? Well, it's the only program she knows how to run. Because it's the only one we had at the school on. And she said, well, yes, I do. And he said, well, I don't see any reason to interview anybody else. According to him, I trust him. You can have the scholarship if you want it. And so all of a sudden, we got a half scholarship, which is $4,500 a year for four years. Boom, 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 right there. And he said, well, now, who's this? Well, this is my sister, Jessica. She's trying to get a walk-on with the basketball team. She was an honorable mention, all-state basketball player, three-point shooting champion in Oklahoma. She's trying to get a walk-on. We've sent uh, nine resumes with nine pictures. Nobody's called us. He said, well, I know Coach Fink better. I'll call him, get an interview for you tomorrow. Oh, okay. The next day, we get a phone call at the house. It's Coach Finkbinder, the female coach, or Roberts. Hey, can you have Jessica come in and see me? Oh dear God, yes. Jessica goes in. Long story short, she sits down and, and uh, he talks to her a minute. And Jessica said they had a court board there in the office, and all eight of the uh, there was either eight or nine. Of them, uh, it was eight and half of eleven piece of paper. Half the eight and half of eleven was a picture of her playing basketball. The other half are stats, you know, scores, stats, GPA, just to let them know, hey, this this girl's interested. She's a quality kid. She may not be great, but she's a quality kid. Oh yeah, we kept sticking them up. You were sort of the joke in the office, man. That kid sent another resume. That kid, and we just kept pinning one on top of one another. And so they were still there. And she said, he said, "Well, now, babe, I'll be honest with you. I don't have any scholarships for any uh, shooting guards. I got plenty of shooting guards. I need a six foot five center, not a five foot six shooting guard." He said, "Well, okay." He said, "But I tell you what, would you be willing to come out with a team and uh, uh, just work out with us? Because I, I do need a manager." You know, I don't need a player. I need a manager. You know, wash the clothes, carry the balls, get stuff set up, you know, make sure everybody's doing what they need to be doing, getting on the bus. You'll travel with the team, but I will let you practice with us. Okay? You can work out with us. I'll let you work out, but you've got to work. So would you be willing to come on just as a manager, kind of hang out with the team? She said, just to get around us. Sure, I'd love to. Just get around the team. It would be wonderful. So he signed a piece of paper. He hands it to her, and he said, well, take this to financial aid. And she said, well, what for? He said, well, I have no scholarships for any basketball players, but I have a full scholarship for a manager. (laughs) Now, you understand, for three years, I'm trying to help you here tonight. In three years, nothing happened. Nothing moved. Nothing opened. It's sitting still. But we're praying. We're confessing. We're believing. I'm repenting when I get mad, but I'd repent and get back and say it again. And all of a sudden, in less than 24 hours, we got almost $80,000 in scholarship money. God's never late. He's right on time. How many times do you think maybe we got right to the moment we're about to get it? This ain't gonna work. If stinking scripture stuff doesn't work, crazy, goofy, charismatic, word of faith, goofball, bunch of cult people, name it and claim it, crazy people. You know, you've heard it said. Go ahead and make fun, because I'm not getting out of line. You ever gone to Walmart and get out of line? Don't ever get out of line at Walmart. I've done this before. I've gone there and like, you know, they got twenty seven checkout lanes here there and like. This is a short one. But all of a sudden somebody in front of you didn't get something with a price on it's like, We need help on aisle fourteen. It's like, Oh dear Lord, help me, Jesus. Well you look over and that aisle's moving. So you get up and you hurry and you run down like a Christian, you get in front of everybody, because that line's moving. But then all of a sudden they get down, and somebody forgot change, there's no change. Oh man, now that line's not moving. You look back, your line's moving now. Oh man, now my line's moving. There's something you tell the kids when you get in line, don't get out. Stay in line. You believe in God for something? If you haven't heard him say no, you keep believing for it. I don't care if it looks like it's past due, overdue, outdated. No, God, you promised it. If I'm believing something wrong, you said you can talk to me when I go to sleep. I'm going to keep believing you for this. And so we've gone through this with, with our kids and having to believe God for For cars, for college, spouses, you name it, we're going through stuff. You will never get up a day in your life that you don't get to believe God for something. What you believe him with is the word of God. So if you're not in it, you have no weapons to fight the devil with. The word of God in my heart is the sword of the spirit coming out of my mouth, and the devil is terrified of that. So we'll go back, tell you again. Number one, you need a vision for your life. How do you get one? You, listen, you don't need to pray, shave your head, light a candle, hum a hymn, or suck rug. Just get a pencil, piece of paper, order some Pepsi and pizza, and just start writing. Lord, here's what I believe I'd like to do. Where's the God said he'd give you the desires of your heart. What do you desire to do? And there's no limit on it. Just think big. Green big. How big can you dream, You know? And get it down on paper. Now, once you do that, you know, uh, this is my vision. Okay, well, then I need a plan. How am I going to get it to come to pass? So, well, where will I be five years from now? If this is what I want to do. When do I think I'll be able to get it done? Five years, 10 years, 20 years? So you start to write down a plan. Well, you know, can't do it today, but I can do this today. But a year from now, I should be able to do this. And two years, this. And you write a plan. People who write things down get things done. Again, i Share with Passion is a great secular book called Write It Down, Make It Happen. And a lot of financial $1,000, $5,000 seminars will recommend that book because it's just stories, testimonies of people because it's a law, Habakkuk 2, 2. Write the vision and make it plain. Write down what you want to do because if you're not looking at it, you're not praying about it, you're just dealing with the other stuff that's not working. When I go home tomorrow, I'm not going to deal with anything that's working in my office, in my home or my family. I won't give a single thought to anything that's working. I will give thought to what's not working so I can fix it. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called the children of God. Well, one scripture says it this way. Blessed are the problem solvers. My job is to solve problems, not avoid them, solve them. I'm not avoiding them. I solve them. I'm no different than Jesus walking from point A to point B, healing sick, casting out devils, and feeding the hungry. What are you doing? I'm helping the lost and dying world. I'm a problem solver. But to do that, even like Jesus, I got to get aside every now and then and get loaded back up and rest up and fellowship with the Father and get built back up because when you go, you'll get drained. Remember when Jesus was walking through the crowd and that woman touched him that was bleeding to death? It's, it's a sardine can alley over there. If you've ever been there where this happened, this woman's bleeding to death. She should have been stoned to death, but they can't see her because it's just packed. She's down under everybody's feet. And she had said, now watch this, watch about speaking. She had said, if I can touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole. There's not one Old Testament scripture that promised that. I'm trying to help you. You understand? She just determined that man's the son of God. And he's got power. If I can just touch him, I'm going to get me some of it. Jesus is walking with his disciples, just shoulder to shoulder, front to back. And all of a sudden she's under everybody's feet and she grabbed his coattail. And the Bible says that Jesus felt virtue go out of him. He has no knowledge. She's down there. He's God, but he's here as a man. All of a sudden, he said, boom, boom. He said, man, somebody just touched me. Peter said, Lord, everybody's touching." No, 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 you don't understand. Somebody just took virtue out of me. Somebody just drained me of some power. Boom, boom, I felt it go out. Somebody just tapped into something. Jesus pushed everybody back. He looks down at this bloody woman in the street who's now been healed, and here's what he said. Woman, your faith has made you whole. Not my faith. I didn't even know you were there. Your faith made you whole. Well, where did the faith come from? The Bible says faith speaks. If you don't get a vision written down and get it plain, you won't talk about it. You'll just grab out what's not happening in your life. You've got to start writing something down. I, I've had people say, is this second? No, it's biblical. Throughout the, I'm just giving you stories all night long. Write it down and start chasing something. Now, here's what happens if you don't get a vision. The devil will sidetrack you with something that's good but not God. The devil is the angel of light. I told you, he doesn't have horns or he doesn't puke. He not have a tail. He's the most beautiful thing God made. The devil sways people with words. He's a liar. He'll sway you, puff you up, you know, get somebody to brag on you. No, I need to hear from God. Not people bragging on me. I need to hear from God. We went to South Africa back in 1993 to do a big kid's crusade with my pastor, Willie George. And when we were over there, they took and to showed us one of the largest diamond mines in the world. And it's a this story's been around forever, full gospel businessmen. Earl Nightingale's the one that made it famous because he was in South Africa and he heard the story and saw the plaque. But South Africa was settled by Dutch farmers. A lot of Dutch farmers came down because they heard it was fertile land, and they came down and began to grow potatoes down where the country, nation of South Africa is. So often they're down there, and there's a lot of Dutch farmers plowing down there and uh, uh, having good farms. And all of a sudden they, they found gold, and then they found diamonds, you know, a lot of diamonds. And so farmers began to sell their farms to go dig. Why should I dig potatoes? If I can dig a diamond. Well, did God call you to be a diamond miner or a potato digger? Because you can get wealthy digging potatoes, in case you don't know that. You know, Idaho potatoes, that, that family's multimillionaires. Out in Boise, Idaho, every McDonald's got french fries. And there's thousands of them. Every Burger King's got french fries. You get french fries everywhere. Where Where's french fries come from? Potatoes. Where at? Idaho. <laughs> Those farmers are so thankful you're eating french fries. What are you called to do? See, if you don't know that vision, what you're called to do, you'll get sidetracked doing something you weren't called to do. Is it evil? No, it's just not what you were supposed to be doing. Remember, I told you last night when Peter got upset about John, well, what about John, Jesus? And Jesus said, what's that to thee? You follow me. You're not John. You're you. You've got to do what I've called and gifted you to do. That's where your success will be, not in his life. I like John. You like John, but you're not John. You're you. Every hair in your head is numbered, the Bible says. God is very detailed, very specific. He orders your steps, directs your paths, guides you into all truth, shows you things to come. He's not messing around, but he won't make you do it. I said it so many times this weekend. I said before you, life, death, blessing, cursing, you choose. You've got to choose to chase God. You draw close to God, he'll draw close to you. You seek, you find. You knock, he'll open. You ask, he'll answer. You stare at God, he'll stare back. God's not moved out of pity. God's only moved out of faith. So then he wrote this down mine. So this farmer, they're starting to find diamonds, and farmers are selling their, <laughs> selling their farms and going off to dig diamonds. And this one farmer is one of the last ones to hold out. He just kept digging potatoes, and finally got mad one day. He said, man, I'm tired of digging potatoes. Man, there's guys getting rich digging diamonds. I'm going to sell my farm, buy a wagon, some shovels, and we're going to go dig for diamonds. And he did. Well, he sold his farm to another potato farmer, a younger guy who would just come down uh, from, from Holland. So he sold it to him. He runs off. Now, the story says that he died, this farmer who sold his farm, died 30 years later by drowning himself in a river. He was broke. His wife had left him. Kids had grown up and left him. He died penniless. No farm, no diamonds. Found a few diamonds, little gold, but not enough to sustain him. He died broke 30 years later, committed suicide. He sold his farm to another farmer. Two weeks after the farmer bought this guy's farm, he invites a guy over to help him build a barn because he's going to do some potato farming. And so he's staying with them for a few weeks, going to help them build this barn, and so he's feeding them dinner in the evening. They're eating dinner. Not I if it's the thing about farms, but most everybody puts their dinner windows facing the west because you worked all day, you ate supper late in the evening, you're facing the west, sun come down so you can have light before there was electricity. So the windows are facing west. They're sitting there eating dinner at a table. The sun hit, comes through that window as it's setting, and it hits this big crystal rock on the fireplace mountain. Now, this is on a massive plaque on front of this mine over there. Sun hits that big crystal, all of a sudden blue and red light dance all over that room, they said. The farmer's friend went over and picked it up and said, Man, what is this? It's this a crystal. Isn't that beautiful? Man, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And the guy said, Man, this doesn't look like a crystal. If I didn't know better, it looks, it looks like a diamond. Now, it's bigger than a hard boiled egg, it's huge. And of course, it's not, it's not cut, it's just a big rock. He said, Man, if I don't know, this is a diamond, you've got to take this thing to town and, and ask somebody. I think this might be a diamond. He said, I'm not going to go to town and ask somebody if that rock's a diamond and get embarrassed. I've got to go to town and do business. No, no, I'm telling you, man, I think this is a diamond he said, and the, farm, the farmer said, that can't be a diamond. The creek bed's full of them. And it's a true story. I'm not making this a true story. So they walked 30 yards out behind the farmhouse in a creek running behind the house in six inches of water. Him, his farmer friend, their two kids, took two wooden milk buckets and filled them up full of diamonds just laying on the bottom of a creek bed. One guy sold it to go look for it. The devil works that way. He'll get you chasing something you've already got. God gifted you at the moment of conception. You have a gift. He will never take that gift away from you. You cannot sin bad enough to make him take that gift away from you. Your gift will make room for you, make you wealthy. It won't take you to heaven. Jesus takes you to heaven. There are heathens using their gift and making millions of dollars tonight. The shame of it would be to be a born-again spirit-filled Christian and not know what your gift is. So I'll back up and I'll go through this again. Vision. What do you think God's called you to do? Number two, what are you good at? Well, go take a test. Go take an unemployment test. Go take a skills test. Go down, to, go down to Barnes & Noble and buy you a book. There's books full of tests down there that you can take and read that'll help you find out what you're good at. Well, if I'm good at it, I need to get better at it because that's what I'm going to get paid for. So you start finding out what that is. And so you begin to do something. Then I realize, oh, man, I can be good at this. Then you come up with this budget thing. Well, how much money is going to take to either go back to school or build this business or start this thing, and you run a budget? How much money do I need? We were sharing this morning with staff, if you go to the Small Business Administration to get a loan from the federal government, they're going to ask you for a five-year business plan. The federal government gives loans to Americans wanting to start business. The government believes in business. I don't care what you read. They'll give you a loan, but they need a five-year business plan from you. That means five years. Now, how big will your building be? How many employees will you have? What's going to be your square footage? What's going to be your overhead? What's going to be your debt ratio to your profit ratio? They're going to ask you to tell them that. Now, most people go in there, and I've had relatives go get loans to open up stores and the automotive stores, and they come out. Then you know what they ask me? They want to know what is, how much money I was going to be making five years from now. So, well, dear God, I don't know. I don't have my business yet. They wouldn't give me a loan. That's right. The government gives loans to vision, not to want tos. You've got to have a clear vision. And they'll give you the forms even to fill out. Here's what I'll be, and what I'll be doing. And then one of the requirements they ask you for is to go visit three competitors. You're going to open a dry cleaning, a hardware store. You're going to open a business, a gymnasium. They're going to ask you to go find three people already doing what it is you want to do and go visit them. As iron strikes, iron so the countenance of a friend. Even the heathen government understands you learn by watching other people. You don't have to be arrogant. Go learn from somebody else. Go ask questions. When I became a children's pastor, I've never been a children's pastor. I've been an engineer. I don't know anything about kids. I've got two kids. I've already messed them up. I don't know. But I'm hired to be in charge of children's ministry. And it was just crazy. They shouldn't have hired me. I have no skill in this. I took pastoral in Bible school. I don't know about kids. But it was the opening they had. And they thought I was a faithful tithing member of the church. And I've been to Bible school. You'll do good. Everybody likes you, Joe. I said, well, liking me is one thing. Me doing a job is something else. And so I remember I asked my pastor, so, well, will you give me a couple of weeks to go visit some other children's ministries in Tulsa? So I went to 10 different churches that I thought had great children's ministries. It took two weeks. Took guys to lunch, looked at their building, looked at their paperwork, what curriculum are you using, what kind of puppets, what kind of stage, how do, you, how do you do this thing? You do an hour, 30 minutes, what do you do? And so in two weeks, I learned how to do children's ministry, not in Bible school, but by watching other people who did it. When I was an engineer with Olin Matheson, we'd go visit our competitors. At least three times a year, I remember we went down to Southwire down in Atlanta, they were our biggest competitor. I remember we went in to visit them, and uh, we just went, we didn't make an appointment, we just showed up and I said, Can we help you? He so We'd like to see your engineer. A uh, production engineer, and sure, and so Bill Clark, my boss, who was our engineer, and me, and we went in. He, kind of help? Us. He said, "Yo, know, Bill Clark, I'm Joe McGee. and we're from Triangle Wire and Cable up in Saxton, Missouri. Oh yeah, Triangle. We know you guys. We're one of their competitors, little competitor, but we're a competitor. So we'd like to come down, and just take a tour of your plant, just see how you do, because your guys, you guys are our biggest competitor, and you're doing it better than anybody else. And we just like to take a tour. And he just stared at us for a minute. Your kid." You're the best. We just thought we're going to learn go learn from the best. We just thought maybe you'd give us a tour and show us what you do and how you do it. Now, this is our competitor. You think, say, get out of here, you heathens. You're not going to steal our ideas. He just grinned real big and said, well, come on, I'll show you something. And he was so proud. He gave us a three-hour tour, bought us lunch. One of the things we learned, by the way, we were making uh, see this wire right here? This is real fine braided wire, copper wire. It's real small, very small. And there's there's uh, 24 wires braided together. They're, like, they're almost like sewing thread. And so when you make that, it's copper, you know, it stretches. Well, when you when you put it on a spool, when you pull it off a spool, it's hard to pull it off without stretching it beyond its diameter. So man, we're messing this up trying to trying to braid it, you know. Well, what they'd done, they'd come up with two giant nose cones, like the front end of a big jet, big nose cones. They had them side by side. And instead of rolling the wire off, boom boom. They put it off like a spool of thread. They turn the spool sideways and then they put off some slack and then they start running it and it would come off a spool of thread and it would whip off that thing around that big cone. And it didn't bother the tensile strength, didn't bother. And they can, where we're running at 1,200 feet a minute, they're running at 4,000 feet a minute. And so we took that back and did, we ran it at 4,000 feet a minute. And the guy said, you know, the CEO said, Where'd y'all learn this, Southwire? How'd you find out? We just went down and asked. He just laughed. You just asked? Yeah, we just went and asked. And they showed it to you? Yeah, people love to tell you what they're good at. I just gave you a great secret. People love to brag about themselves. Don't show up and start bragging. Show up and start asking questions. Humble yourself. God exalts the humble, not the arrogant. Quit showing up, sucking the oxygen out of room, and ask some questions. Hey, how you do that? Man, that's good. I hear you do that real good. People love to brag about what they're good at. It's the way God got it set up about how you learn. So, come back here to the money thing. Now, I'm going to recommend, years ago when we were struggling financing, I was flying through Dallas Airport, and I picked up a book. A couple of teachers, school teachers up in uh, Indiana, and talked about how both of them are uh, very strong Democrats and love Democratic government, and they believed in, you know, little different things than I believed in, but I read it and had three kids and how they made it financially became multimillionaires. And, um, uh, and I thought, how did they turn their life around? He said, well, he read, he read 64 books on finance. He said, I realized I'm ignorant. I have a degree in education. I know nothing about money. So it took me two years to read 64 books on money. I just started buying secular books. You know, how do you, how do you handle finance? How do you, you know, there's a lot of good books. You go down to the bookstore, there's lots of them there. I thought, well, if he did it, I can do it. Evidently, I'm ignorant when it comes to money. I love Jesus. I go to church. I pay my tithes. I try to save. But man, I don't make much money. I'm not doing well with my money. What does he know? I don't know because it's always something natural. So I didn't read that many. I read, I think it was 57. I didn't read 64. I read 57 books. Now, what I'm doing tonight, real second, you can come see this in just a minute when I finish. Of the 57 books I read, this is my favorite one. I read a lot of good books. I like them all. This is my single most favorite book I ever read on money right here and it's called well happens one day at a time brooke stevens a wonderful godly baptist tithing woman who grew up in harlem writes for the uh, new york times and wall street journal and she has written one of the greatest easy to understand books now this is it comes off my shelf now all these pages are yellow and all, the reason i like this because it's just one page and one page and in one page i just it's full of just one liner ideas about money how you get loans. How you improve your credit rating. You know, how you make sure you're paying greater. You don't get a credit card with 27% interest. How you get a good car loan. How you go get a good home loan. How you can, and it was just practical. I thought, oh my goodness, this woman saved me thousands of dollars. I remember I called because, you know, if you get a new house, uh, you got to pay a mortgage insurance on that in case you default until you get a certain amount of the house paid for and that loan paid down. Well, I didn't know that. And so I remember when I read that, I thought, well, shoot, I need to call my mortgage company and see if I have to pay that. And I said, hey, uh, I'm Joe McGee. This is my loan number. Do I still have to pay that extra mortgage insurance on my house? And he said, "Well, how long you had it?" And I said, "Well, we have had it about. Uh, I think that time we had it about. I don't remember fifteen, sixteen years. I guess thirty-year loan." So well, can we call you back? Sure. Three days. Come back. Said, no, Mr. McGee, you, you don't have to pay that anymore. You've got that paid down below the uh, the loan difference. And so you know you don't have to pay that. I said, "So what's that going to save me? Eighty-four dollars? No, it's eighty-eight dollars a month. It's going to save me eighty-eight dollars a month? You're kidding, really? I don't have to pay that? No." I got excited, and I thanked him profusely. And so, yeah, you'll see it on your next house payment. It'll be $88 lower. Oh, my God, I just made myself an extra $1,000 for Christmas. I'm so proud. I told my wife, hey, normally what I did today, bought this, <laughs> i saved us this $1,000. Christmas, we're going to have an extra $1,000. Well, what happened? I said, well, I found out we didn't have to pay this, and they're going to take it off. She said, well, you know, this is a wife. who's Please help me. She said, well, how long have we been paying it we didn't have to pay it? <laughs> I, I don't know. We'll call them back and ask them. Maybe they owe us more money. I was feeling real good as a man there for a minute. Now I felt like a little five-year-old boy again. Okay, mommy, I'll go call them. I'll get back with you. <laughs> so I went and called. And they said, well, I've been paying eight years that I didn't have to. And I said, do I get a refund? And she got a little quiet on the phone. They said, no, no, miss me, That's your job to notify us, not our job to notify you. So I realized that I had given away $8,000 in eight years. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now, you can bind the devil and plead the blood and rebuke it all you want. Sometimes it's just ignorance. You know, money's a big deal. You ought to know something about it. You don't have to go get a degree. Read something. Read the book. And every chapter in here that she talks about, what I, there's a website or an 800 number at the bottom, and it's all free. Everybody say free. Say it again. All her recommend, are all three government agencies that your tax dollars pay for who will help you figure out money. Everything from loans, interest rates, credit card things, fraud, somebody done you wrong, tell you how to handle it, what to do, better business for your stuff. It's all right here. This is the single Holy Grail book on money. I'll just we'll throw that at you and come look at it when we dismiss here. Don't don't take my book. Get your own. Is that good? <laughs> now, I'm going to do this a little different now. Now, uh, I just did this. This is a new teaching we got coming out here in a month. But I'm going to read you just these few first six scriptures on this. It's called First Things First. I realize God, God's got a God of priority. He doesn't change his mind. For example, just listen to this John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing was made without Him. He made everything that you and I see. There's a starting point. How did everything start? Jesus. Before He was Jesus, He was Christ, the second one of the God that He made the universe. He holds everything together by the power of his word. Jesus isn't a name to use when you cuss. He's the son of God. He holds everything together. He's the one that saved us. You understand that? It's good to give him priority. Don't use his name in vain. Real stupid thing to do. Number two, Matthew 6:33. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things to be added. What things? Water, food, clothes. I need some stuff. Well, you need to seek first God. What? God will give you clothes, water, and stuff. Don't worry about that money. But you need to seek first God because He'll lead you. Order your steps. Direct your paths. Guide you in all truth. Make God a priority. Get up in the morning, read your scripture. Read a proverb. Read two verses in a proverb. Say a 60-second prayer. Father, I thank you. I'm going to commit this day in your hands. You're going to order my steps, direct my paths, guide me in all truth. Show me things to come surround me. With the shield of divine favor. I think of my seed is going to be mighty upon this earth. Wealth and rich are going to be in their house. Their rights are going to endure forever. Lord, my kids are surrounded with the shield of divine favor. It's going to bring great honor to the family name. I just spit stuff out just to get me going. You know what? If you'll just spit something out for about 30 seconds or 60 seconds, you'll start thinking of other stuff and you'll catch yourself driving to work. And you've been praying the whole time. It's like, man, I must be behind because I'm still praying about stuff. Really, because your spirit will kick in. Oh, it's incredible. Third scripture, Matthew 12, 28. This is the first of all commandments. What is it? To love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, and mind. I'm to love God. Jesus saying, if you talk talking about loving God, how do you love God? Well, John 15, Jesus said, Don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. My greatest commandment is to love God. How do I do that? I love you, God. No, no, no. Don't tell me. Did you not read what I told you? Don't tell me. My wife says, Joe, don't tell me. Show me. I love you, Nene. Show me. What's that mean? Well, I'm a lover, a leader, and a provider. Love sacrifices. I need to help out around the house, do the dishes. I've got a male apron. I wash dishes because I like playing kissy face at 11 o'clock at night. And you know, she's had to do the dishes, the laundry, help out with the homework, and get the kids' clothes ready. She sits down on the couch at 11 o'clock at night, tired, greasy, dirty, and mad. If I've been taking a nap and eating extra chocolate cake and watch a football game and I'm feeling good, she do not want to play kiss your face She wants to slap me with a ball bat. So we were coming out of a marriage seminar one time in Springfield, Missouri. We were coming out, and the lady, had, it was about sex and marriage. It, it was a three-day seminar. This is a college professor. She said, today we're going to talk about sex and marriage, 50-minute class. And here's how she opened up that session. She said, well, Dishes, diapers, dinner, and sex. One's about as much fun as the other. Now, I'm sitting there with Denise. She's pregnant with our fourth daughter, I thought. And it's packed. There's 1,200 people in this talking What did she just say? And Denise didn't smile. Shut up, Joe. You're about to learn something. <laughs> and in essence, was, the teaching was this. Men do what they want to do. Women do what they have to do. Men and women come home Monday afternoon. I've got to get dinner ready, help the kids with the homework, get the laundry done, find out if to get their homework right, get them ready for bed, make sure they're all bathed, you know, husband sit down, watch food, watch Monday Night Football and take a nap and drink three iced teas, you know. And so they said, John, let me interpret for you as we were walking out, Let me interpret uh, what you heard in there today in case you don't understand it. If you want me to play kissy face at 11, I need you in the kitchen with an apron on at 7. <laughs> and I went and bought me an apron. It's a guy apron, but I got one. And I do dishes and I do laundry. And I do dry cleaning. I play kissy face. Anyhow, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I exhort that first of all, supplications, prayers, and intercessions, the giving of thanks be made for all men. Why? So I can lead a quiet, and peaceful life. If I'm not praying for those over me, I won't lead a quiet, and peaceful life. I don't want to put bumper stickers on my truck about my president or my congressman or my senator. I'm commanded to first of all pray for them so I can lead a quiet, and peaceful life. You prayed for them because you love them? No, I didn't vote for them. Why do you pray for them? I want a quiet, and peaceful life. Really? Yeah. So I pray passionately. Father, take blindness off their minds and lighten the eyes with understanding. Send labors across their path. Talk to them when they go to sleep and they wake up. Keep them safe from all harm. Let no evil come near them, near their dwelling. They're going to make wise decisions it's concerning the United States of America and the state of Oklahoma. We got the mind of Christ, the wisdom of God, Father. Why? I want to lead a quiet, and peaceful life. in all God's knowledge, it will not happen if I don't pray for authority. Now, this is just, these are all, this is what I call first things. These are things that God does not change his mind on. So what happens when you start wanting money? I need to make sure I'm not doing something stupid that's keeping money from coming to me. You understand what you're doing? Just going through a checklist. It's like you fly a plane. Every time I get on a plane, I'm a million miler with American. I have flown around the earth 40 times with American. I'm a million miler with Delta. I'm sure I'm a million miler with Southwest. They just don't keep the numbers. I've circled the earth more times. Every time you get on an airplane, there are two pilots up there who go through a checklist. They looked at it, but when they took off to come to Tulsa, they're going to look at it, and they take back off. They're going to look at it and take off again. They never take off that, that entire checklist again. Is everything right? We got pressure everywhere, everything where it's supposed to be, because you can't pull over to the side of the road at 33,000 feet. There's a thought for you. I love airplanes. I was scared of them as a kid. I love them now. Sleep on top. You know, you don't have very many accidents up there. You know that, don't you? There's a lot of room. Just a thought. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it will be well with you and you have a long life. Well, I want it to be well with me. I want to be wealthy. I want to live long. What am I supposed to do? Honor my mom and dad. And what if they were mean ignorant, drunk, and fornicating, and snoping, beer-selling, crazy people? I'm to honor them. I'm to honor the office of my parents. I may not hang out with you or eat lunch with you, but I'm not going to dishonor you. I'm not going to cuss you out, talk bad about you. Father, bless them. They didn't know any better. Help them. They were blinded. The devil's blind blinded their minds. They didn't have anybody training them. They didn't know how to train me. Lord, help them every way you can. I plead the blood of Jesus over their mind. Take blindness off their minds. Forgive them their sins, Father. Order their steps, direct the pastor. All matter of your goodness, if I pray for them, it will be well with me and I'll live long. You understand about Priorities. What are we talking about is not money. <laughs> I work hard. You know how many times I've said that? Well, I work hard. I work real hard. My wife said one time, well, you need to work smarter, not harder. I need to make a bumper sticker out of that. Mark 13, verse 10. This gospel must first be, first be preached to all nations. First be preached to all nations. Then then will come. others. there's first things first. Now, let me give you this list right here. This is the one for my kids. This is for Sarah through John. Seven bad career decisions. Hmm. Number one, these are bad decisions. Choose the first and easiest job you can get. (laughs) Not good. Choose a job based on the money it pays. Well, that's not good because um, when I was a foreman uh, for Southwest Wire, we did what we call top ending. It's called top ending. They teach you this in college. We hired people at a real high rate compared to everybody else in town. We're going to pay you a real high rate. We're going to give you a free turkey for Thanksgiving and a free ham for Christmas. And every Christmas, every employee gets a $1,200 Christmas bonus. But we, we turned them away. We never lacked for good labor. Now, what we didn't tell them is, if you work for us for another 20 years, you'll never make more than another dollar an hour because we top-ended you. We brought you in high. The turkeys we give you, we would buy at um, Pickles Grocery Store and Broken Arrow. I wouldn't eat one of them. The $1,200 we give you, is $100 of your pay we kept out a month and saved and handed you at Christmas time. We know you won't save it. And so if you have a bad Christmas, you're an unhappy employee. So we're going to keep your money and hand it to Christmas, and you're going to thank us for a bonus. Well, it was actually your money. <laughs> we just kept it for 11 and a half months and drew interest off of it. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Now, I'm not trying to upset anybody. I'm just trying to you, I learned that in college. How do you do as a employer? Well, we're we'll going to learn how to help people out, and we'll get a benefit out of helping them out. We'll be benefited. Well, now, don't pick a job based on money because what, how much this job going to be paying 20 years from now or five years from now? It, is there room for improvement? Can I get advancement in this place of employment? Or is this a dead-end job? I don't need a dead-end job. I need a job that will move somewhere. I'll shovel. I'll clean the toilets. I'll take out the trash. But is there room for me to move up? I want room to move up. I am shocked how many people take a job and they don't want to go anywhere. They just, you know, I guess is an easy job. Well, what kind of ignorant doofus are you? People don't pay people for easy jobs. They pay for doing hard jobs. Usually, the harder the job, the more they pay you. There's the deep thought. Choose a job because it sounds like a good title. We used to do that. <laughs> you're going to be the chairman and supervisor of the Walla Walla Heba. What's that mean? Well, here's a broom. Get down there and sweep that, you know. what they call us? Custodial engineers. We call them custodial engineers. What are, you're a custodial engineer. What does that mean? You clean the bathroom, sweep the floor, and go to the dump. But you're an engineer. Why? We called you that. What do you do? I'm an engineer down in Old Mass. What kind? I'm a custodial engineer. What does that mean? Well, I sweep a lot of stuff. But I have a great title. They give you a parking place. <laughs> Everybody's got a parking place. and no, I got one with my name on it. You choose a job because your friends are working there. A lot of my friends aren't paying my bills. You choose a job because your parents do that job. Well, that could be good. might not be good. You might not be gifted the same as your daddy or your mom's gifted. Where's your gift at? What are you doing with it? Choose a job because it fulfills your parents' unfulfilled dreams. Now, buddy, that's a big one. I could go a whole seminar on that. I can't afford to do that. I'm not doing what my daddy didn't get a chance to do. I'm doing what I'm called and gifted to do. You understand? Man, I remember when I was calling the ministry, I went and told my dad I'd just become an engineer. Now, you understand? I got kicked out of college. Um, I, I got fired from a couple of jobs. I, I was not good. I just know typical, lazy southern boy like to spit tobacco juice and kiss my wife. Go hunt and shoot something. And I realized this didn't get me anywhere. So going back to night school and learning stuff, so I finally became an engineer. I got a new house in Sykes, Missouri. I got a brand new car. got two new babies. And I felt God call us into the ministry. I had to go home and tell my dad at Christmas time that I believe God's calling us into the ministry. I'm going to be quitting my job and going back to Bible school. I told him that while we were watching a bowl game at his house. He didn't even answer. He just kept watching the ball game. I started to say, did you hear me? But I know he heard me. I thought, well, there it is. So I didn't say anything else, so the next day, you know, we're getting ready to leave, and he had a woodshed out behind the house. He said, so come here, son, I don't want to talk to you. I thought, okay, where are we going? I'll going go here to the woodshed. Well, that's where I used to go to get a whipping. <laughs> now, I'm an adult now, but this is not good. I have no good memories of this woodshed. So we walk up there, and we walk in, and I was kind of leaning up against the wall. I'm looking at her. He said, "So you're going to be a preacher, huh? And he didn't like it. I said, yes, sir, I believe that's what I'm called to do. I'm going back to Bible school, and I'm going to be a preacher. He just stared at him for a minute. He's just wanting to cuss the blue screen. He, in he said, well, by God, you better be a good one because there's not many. I said, okay, I'll do that then. Well, I got to go. <laughs> he stayed mad at me for three years until finally, you know, we got on the staff. We started doing stuff. He came out and saw the church we were working at and what we were doing. And we stood out in front of the City of Faith after my baby had been healed of spinal meningitis. He'd been in intensive care for 10 days. and You know, he never cared for Oral Roberts. He, he said, what kind of nut names a building after him? Named the whole school after. You're supposed to wait till you die to do that. I said, well, he's, he's still alive. But I figured since it's his, it's his school, he probably just named it after himself. You know, like Kinko's, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how you do that. So anyhow, after my baby had been healed and we'd been there in three days, he is for the first time in his life, he hugged my neck in front of the city of faith and he said, son, I'm awful proud of you. I believe you've heard from God. Now, sometimes you're waiting on affirmation for what you're doing, and you may not get it for a long time, but you've got to obey God. You understand that? Nobody's going to obey God for you. You've got to obey God for yourself. What are you called to do? What are you supposed to be doing? And the last is you get a job because you have the minimum ability to do it. Oh, I don't like that. That's not good. Now, give you this right here. Now, this is the the last two chapters in this book. And here's what I'm going to give you now about your gifts. We read last night about, you know, your notebook you put together and writing your name and all those scriptures and uh, about taking it. We talked about work. But I want to give you this right here tonight. This is, um, this is about goal setting. That's what we're kind of talking about. If I never give you another thing, you've got to learn how to sit down and write a goal for yourself. Don't think, well, is it right? No, just write something down. I'm working with one of my daughters on the phone today that's having a big job change thing coming up in her life right now. This thing about the power to get wealth, uh, there will always be an economy. Luke 17, will eat, drink, marry, and giving in marriage. Uh, I need to learn about things. For example, I know that the best time uh, to buy automobiles is in February at the end of the month. That's the best month. Cars with the lowest price. We've come out of Christmas. People buy cars at Christmas time in December. It's a big month. They're trying to get that money before the end of the year, get it done. January is a horrible month. February is starting to come back. If you're a car salesman, man, the end of February, you're not eating too good. And they are going to make a deal. So the greatest month to buy a car is the end of February. Now, that's just carnal knowledge. You understand that? so you go in so i remember my, we bought our son's truck man i remember they were begging us to buy that truck and so we're getting ready to buy this pick i'm trying to i got i got about twelve thousand dollars budgeted for this thing for a good used pickup truck because i wanted to get all the way through college in it i said no someone we're not getting any more than twelve thousand dollars okay i want a good truck but not a great truck but a good truck you understand it's a college truck then your next truck you buy yourself so we're looking at it so we're down there looking and of course the prices are cut and so we're looking at this truck and it's about thirteen two. Well, 13 close enough. I'm like, so you like this truck? And he said, how come we can't get a new truck? Well, because you're 18, and it's your first truck. My first car was given to me. It was worth about $300. If it didn't have tires on it, it wouldn't have been worth that. (laughs) So you're getting a really stinking good deal, okay? So I need you to appreciate this, okay? And John's always been a hard worker. He said, well, if we're paying this, why don't we get a new one? And so every time we go to the car lot to look, kind of let him kind of be involved, He's always looked at the new ones. I said, John, get away from there! I'm not buying your new truck, but I'm just down. And I'd laugh about it because I try to lighten stuff up. And he said, well, did you see the price on this one? I'm not looking at the price. So I'm not buying you a new truck. And so we're looking somewhere. So he's got me pushing the $13,000 range. So anyhow, we're at the we're at a big GMC parking lot deal there in Broken Arrow. And he said, well, look at this, Dad. This truck's loaded. I said, I know it's loaded, and you're not getting it. Well, Dad, it's, it's listed for, for $30,000. I said, I know that's why we're not getting it. yet, yeah, but they've got it marked all the way down. They got it marked all the way down to 19.5. I said, well, then there's a problem. That's got to be a liar, messed-up sticker. Well, the salesman come over. Well, John's 18, but he's bold. It's like, you can talk all you want, son. Flap you. I'm going the, the check, and you're not getting it. So, you know, we're having father-son moments. So, long story short, the guy says, well, you know, we've got another dealership across the river here uh, over on the other side uh, of Tulsa, and uh, we're going to have a bunch of them we're getting ready to try to get rid of because we're overloaded. GMC's about to go bankrupt, and they've got to get rid of those trucks. And they've got them way marked down. End of February, remember? End of February. Don't <laughs> go over there? And so instead of paying thirteen two for this n- no air conditioner, roll up windows, uh, step side, navy blue, ugliest knot, but good truck, which is what I was looking for. John goes over here and he finds this brand new <laughs> 2008 GMC loaded, loaded truck. It's loaded. I'm looking at it. And the guy says, "Well, uh, tell you what, you know, we're, we're 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 broke." Said, "I tell you, we can we let you have it for seventeen five. How much? Seventeen five. And what's it listed for? Well, this one's listed for thirty one two. W- w- are you giving it away? We're having to. We got to get rid of them. We They're costless. We got to get them off the lot. You're going to sell that to me for that? Yeah. John just sitting there real quiet. For seven, th- I got a brand new GMC pickup. The cat I can pick up for that price. Can I drive it? Oh, sure. Take it home if you want to. Bring it back tomorrow. No, I don't need to do that. So driving around, of course, now my wife gets involved because she's a mother. Joe, why don't we spend an extra $5,000 in a brand-new GMC Cadillac pickup truck that he can keep forever? We well, can't keep it forever. He'll wear it out eventually. Well, why don't we spend the extra $5,000? Because I got $12,000 budgeted. Well, you got the extra 5000 somewhere. Probably do, but not for this truck. So John's just grinning. But well, Dad, you always said do the best. and now what you tell him to do? Do the best. And John, I can't tell you everything he said, but he did go Don't you think God would like me to have this truck? (laughs) Yes, he would. Which means you're going to work for me every Saturday for the next year. Will you do that? Yeah, and he has. And then he got the new truck. I didn't even laugh when we got it. I thought, this never happened to me. (laughs) That's all I got to say about that. Personal wealth in America, I'm just going to run through this real quick, and then we'll give you a story here. Personal wealth in America, there's a lot of money. I don't know how else to say it. There's a lot of money. Where our assets, this lists them, what people do. A lot of people own stocks and own different stuff. I told you the night about who's rich and what that average thing is. Uh, if you make more than a million a year, you're rich. You make less than a million a year, you're average. I'm <laughs> like, I like to be average. How much do you make? $999,000. Is that average? Father, heaven, my daddy roll over to his grave. My dad made $10,000 a year when I graduated from high school in 1969. He thought he made a lot of money. 10000 thousand. Ten. I remember we thought, my God, that's almost a 1000 a month. I mean, the rent was only $55 a month. What are you going to do with 1000 a month? I don't know. We're going to Disney or something. I mean, we did. <laughs> a lot. But it was a rent house. Anyhow, wealth leakage, there's things you need to do. Uh, best thing I can tell you is um, people pay too much in taxes because they don't read the details, so you ought to read your tax forms. You know, one of the best things you'll ever do is just one time, go hire an accountant for at tax time. It's real cheap. I mean, you can almost get away with it for $100, and they may save you 5000 Just one time, believe God, for an next $100, go hire your tax accountant for the tax time, have them do your taxes, just see if they can find some, And you'll find out every time I do it, I get upset, like, man, I didn't know that, oh, I'm not a tax accountant. Rich people hire attorneys and tax accountants. And other people don't. Well, just just write a check. Well, do I owe that? I want to pay what I owe. I want to pay what I owe. I don't want to pay what I don't owe. Insurance. You know, most people don't carry insurance to think about that. I carry uh, health insurance for all my family. Um, and here's what most people don't think I've got a, what they call a $5,000 deductible. I've got the biggest deductible you can get uh, with our insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Major medical. Anybody I ask to go surgery, major? It's all paid for. But I have to pay the first $5,000. And you think, well, dear God, where would you get it? I don't know. You can sell your car, hawk something. I don't know. You know, you can find it somewhere. Some family might feel sorry for you. But that's better than having no health insurance because I've got family members that had to go to the hospital and come out, on $183,000. They'll be paying for it for the rest of their life. And the hospital gave them a break on that. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. So I went in and said, what's the biggest deductible I can get? 5000 I want that. I want the biggest kumbaya. And so over the years, now this, listen, I'm 59 years old. I'll be 60 next year. But over the years, I've saved 5,000 sitting in a bank. So if I have to go, I've got the 5,000 sitting there and it's drawing interest. And then I've got, uh, I got whole life insurance because I carry a big insurance policy because I still got kids in college. I want to make sure if I drop dead, if something happened, a plane crashed, whatever, my family after the funeral is going to be real happy because there's going to be a lot of money to go around to people because I've got money set aside to pay off any debts I've got, homes paid for. College tuition is paid for. I could get a new car for the for the family. I got money set aside, investments that will draw interest. They can't touch. I've already got it locked up. And so if something happens to me, I'm not worried about my family. Now, they'll do much better off if I stick around and make more money, but they won't die in poverty if something happens to me. But I had to make plans. So, for example, right now, I got the worst kind of insurance. I got whole life. That means I want the kind of insurance that pays after I'm 70. Most insurance is cheap because once you turn 70, it doesn't pay anything. That's because, you know, pays for you when you're young, you've got kids. Well, I got the kind that pays after 70. If I live to be 99 and I drop dead, it's going to pay a chunk chunk of money. But whole life is a real good thing. I like it. Now, they say, well, you don't want whole life. Well, I do because of one reason. That's my money. So I pay every month. And the whole life, it's a lot more expensive than the other kind. But that's my money. For example, uh, if, I need to, if I need a car tonight, if I need to go buy a truck, I go to my insurance company and I borrow my money. Whose money you going to borrow? Mine. How much interest do you pay? Well, I pay seven three quarter percent. Who do you pay it to? Me. I borrow my money and I pay me seven three quarter percent interest to me. I borrow for me and I pay me. Whose money do you borrow? Mine. Well, why do you have to pay interest? Well, that's just the way it's set up. And so it's a whole lot nicer than instead of begging the bank because I've been there trying to beg for a loan. You ever been there and they won't give it to you? You ever been in a bank trying to beg for, and they won't give it to you? I've been. It's embarrassing. It's sad. It's, man. I, my God, I need this money. We can't give it to you. You don't have any collateral. You're not worth anything. I've been there. It's like, I'm not going to be there anymore. And so I started reading and finding out, no, we're going to switch this around. I'm not doing this anymore. It might take me 20 years to get there, and it took me 23, but I finally got to the point where I borrow my money now, not your money, my money. And so the kids will come. They want to borrow money. And I said, for what? Because I'm going to charge you 8%. And you pay me. <laughs> but I'm blessed and I'll make you a blessing. Now, we're not under the law. You know, we be redeemed from the curse of the law, which is poverty, sickness, and death. You've got to understand that. I'm not under the curse of the law anymore. But that doesn't mean the devil won't make a run at me. You, you understand. Uh, we had three cars in the shop four weeks ago. Uh, had to put an engine in one. Uh, this is right after Thanksgiving. Had to put an engine in a Jeep. <laughs> and I, man, praise God. $1,800. It runs good now, though. Uh, we had a transmission we had to fix. It's like it all just kind of landed. But I own those cars. They're all paid for. You understand? I'm not making car payments. They're paid for. Now, I hesitate about sharing this, but I'm going to try to help you out. Um, I have an uncle in Atlanta that's a multi-multi-millionaire, multi-millionaire. He buys all his clothes at the Salvation Army. Everything that man owns and wears is from the Salvation Army. He's so tight, he can make it bleed. That's why he's a multi-multi-millionaire. And he lives in a beautiful home. But if you walk in this house, there are cardboard boxes stacked up in the hallway. Are you all moving? No, those are the clothes he buys at the Salvation Army. He's uh, sort of a clothes nut, and he buys cheap stuff. And so his wife has to sneak him out and go back and sell him to the Salvation Army. And she's told about how he's bought shirts. I've taken them back, and he's gone back and bought them again and didn't know he bought the same shirt that was hanging in his closet that, he sold, that I sold back and he bought again. But, but he's real smart when it comes about money, so I realized I got a lot of kids that have to drive. They've got to drive cars. Now, I get judged. If you come to Tulsa, you talk to people, they'll talk about us out there because uh, all my kids are driving either BMWs or Mercedes. And it's like, well, dear God, who are you? My name's Joe McGee. I got six kids, and I'm a minister. You want them rich ministers, money-grabbing, bleed the people of God, preachers? No. No, I'm a smart one. <laughs> because I paid less for my BMWs Mercedes, and you did it for an old Chevrolet, I guarantee you. And so I've taught my kids how to do it. For example, Jessica, that's making the big money now as an accountant, uh, I said, let me tell you something about Mercedes and BMWs. They're German-built cars. Uh, most of them average 435000 BMW average $435,000. Mercedes get 512000 That's the average we have to replace an engine. That's better than the Chevrolet or Buick. Now, I love Chevrolet. drove Chevys all my life. i uh, got a Ford pickup truck, Ford F-150. My pickup truck, I paid $5,000 for at an auction. It had 193,000 miles on it when I bought it. It has 398000 on it now. I've never done a thing except change the oil every 3,000 miles. The reason I bought it at the auction is because it's a supervisor's truck for the department, uh, Oklahoma Department Highway. And so a supervisor drove up down the interstate in Oklahoma checking on workers. The state owned the truck, state bought the truck, and they changed the oil every 3,000, and they keep the maintenance up. There's not a fancy thing about it. It's a base truck with no chrome anywhere. Base truck, big, long bed, no bed liner, roll-up windows, roll-down windows with an AM radio in it. It's got an air conditioner that will freeze meat. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. It's got two gas tanks. Fill her up and drive forever. <laughs> so I knew when I bought that, I understood because I did some research about buying used vehicles. So I've never bought a new vehicle. I buy used vehicles. And I know they have taken good care of that truck. Well, it's got 193,000. I don't care. I love that truck. And so I bought it at 193, I gave 5,000 at an auction because nobody wants to buy it. Oh, my God, I'm buying no thing Got Almost 200,000 miles on it. I will. All my BMWs and Mercedes all had well over 100,000. They're still running, real good. Wow, those engines last a long time. How do you know that? I did some research. I got a little BMW race car driver a mechanic who works on all my vehicles. See, every time I buy a used vehicle, I take it to him. I write him a check for hundred dollars. Anything major wrong with this car? He checks the engine compression, make sure I got no leaks in my radiator. He checks the uh, my bearings. He checks it all. Well, Joe, everything's pretty good. This need to be replaced, and this, but nothing major. That's all I need to know. I don't trust the dealership. I trust my mechanic. That I pay a hundred dollars, and he says you're in good shape. I check twenty-seven things. You're in good shape. So I remember one I bought one time. He said, "Joe, the radiator's about to blow on this car." And it was a beautiful car, a little BMW had uh, eighty-seven thousand miles on. It. I'm getting it for a great price, and because uh, it's a four door, and people buy one, a, they want a sporty car. They don't want a four door. I do. I don't care. It's four doors. I love four doors. It's cheaper insurance. It's you know you don't have to pay as much insurance. So I paid him a hundred dollars. He said, "Joe, that radiator's about to blow." I said, "You better tell him." As so as I'm pulling back into the lot to buy it, because the guy's excited, because I'm I'm excited about getting the car. It's a great price. As I pull into the lot, that radiator blew. It looked like Old Faithful. I pull in. <laughs> I said, your, your radiator's bad. <laughs> and what they'd done, they'd plugged it. I said, you know, I, I took it to mechanics, and you've plugged it eight times. You got lead plugs in it. It's a bad rate You need to replace the radiator. I'll buy it. And so they did for free. <laughs> we ate dinner that night. I paid for it instead of a radiator. Do you understand? Knowledge. And so I remember when I started buying these cars, people look at this. How can you drive all those cars? Well, Jessica just bought a new Mercedes, it's eight years old. And uh, one owner, one owner the car had uh, 89,000 miles. The lady that drove it was 64 years old. Uh, she didn't work anymore. She'd been retired. Her husband left her a lot of money. And she bought her a new Mercedes. She traded it in. Well, people who buy Mercedes are wealthy people. Poor people don't buy Mercedes. What kind of doofus does that? I remember how I made fun of them. They're Mercedes. They're a bunch of stinking rich people. Well, I've been researching the engine. I knew they ran. So I went in and said, look at this. So I'm looking. So sitting on the lot down there, I said, look, Jessica, here's a good one, right. Beautiful, immaculate backseat hadn't been set in. Oh, my goodness, just immaculate. So I took it to my mechanic and said, Joe, it's an incredible car. I don't think she ever got it over 50 miles an hour. It's incredible. I know. I think it's a good deal. And so she's working a deal with them. So they got the price that's listed at 24000 We got it for nine, $9,000. Just, Jessica just made her last payment on it today. It took her six months to pay it off. It looks brand new. You can't tell what year they are. They don't. You can look like eight year old Mercedes. Immaculate. Beautiful. Little sporty thing. 320. People are like, my God, how much do they, what kind of raise did they give you? How much do you make? And people are judging, you know, I drive my cars cheaper than anybody because they're going to last a long time. Make like My kids change the oil in it, know how to check transmission fluid, check the oil. I'm not telling you to go buy one. I'm trying to tell you, I've tried to learn from me coming out of poverty. My daddy never bought a new vehicle his whole life, ever. I bought a pickup truck, Chevrolet pickup truck, a Newton Chevrolet in Chattanooga. $2,349. Didn't have an air conditioner, but it's brand new. I was the first one in my family. When I drove home that evening, all my aunts, uncles, and cousins came to my house, my $55 rent house, and we had a picnic, and they all sat around my truck like Jesus had come down or Santa Claus had landed in my front yard. <laughs> they sat in the seat, and they're <laughs> the doors. It doesn't, has, has no air conditioning. It has no radio. I finally put a nice one in there, you know, but it had no air. I put a fan like the truckers have. I went and bought a fan at the truck shop, you know, a trucker fan, you know, the little, and it was up in the corner. I'm out of that, and I've had a fl- toggle switch. New truck. Got me a fan. They love that truck. Nobody bought anything new. We had to break that old curse of poverty off of us. But I've told my kids about their banking, about watching the interest rates. Don't take that credit card they send you because, say, well, no interest. Yeah, and read the detail. Read the fine print because in six months, they are going to charge you 27% interest. Don't do it. Go to your bank. You've got money in that bank. I want a low rate. They'll give you less than 10%, but you've got to ask them. If you ask them, they'll do it. But you've got to ask. And so whether it's your insurance, your health insurance, whether what's where you buy a car, when you buy clothes, you buy appliances. Uh, every book, this little book I gave you tells you what time of the month, what time of year it's best. Now, sometimes you, cannot, you can't do that because you've got emergencies. I bought dryers for $10 before. My first dryer I gave $10 for because that's all I could afford. had a roll of duct tape on top of it. You know why? Because the door wouldn't stay shut. And so before I go to work in the morning, I'd rip off about six tears and put them on the side so my wife, when she changed clothes, could put a new piece of duct tape on the door so it'd stay shut. So after a while, that thing gets hot. It was just matted up. In front of my dryer. what is it? That? Well, that's duct tape stuff on. It's fine. We'll scrape it off and put another piece on there. Because for 10 bucks, I don't care. I don't care what it looks like. That's a $10 dryer. Now today, we got a real nice dryer She loaded in the front. But the point is, start where you are. Start where you are. you got to start somewhere. It's your vision. I need a vision. I need a plan. How am I going to get there? 5, 10, 20-year plan. I need to start praying. If I start doing those three things, stuff will start to happen. Get a book. They're free at the public library. You can read this book at the public library for free right here. Wealth happens one day at a time. It's the easiest read you've ever done. You're not interested in everything in this book, just what you're dealing with right now. What are you dealing with? Well, this. Well, read about it. There's a federal number, there's eight hundred numbers. You can call the federal government, they'll help you with it. I'm having problems with this. Well we'll help you. We got people that the government has that'll help you do stuff. And it's free. Don't stay where you are. Let's finish this year bigger than we started. I want you to stand up. I've told this several times, but I'll give this to you. When I realized I was poor and I need to make more money and I needed a job that made more paid more money. I was running a big Strander machine at Olin Matheson. I noticed everybody around me was about 20 years older than me. Got cigarettes hanging out of their mouth, and they're already deaf working that big old plant. I thought, my God, I got to get out of here, Father. I got to make more money. So I started bidding on jobs. If a job in that plant paid 10 cents an hour more than I was doing it, I bid on it. And I noticed people that would come up to me when I would, because it was a union shop, and, if, and I'd go down where you punch your clock every day, and it was swing shifts. And if any job in this big old plant, 300 employees, if any job paid 10 cents more than what I was making, I signed my name on it. Now it didn't mean I had the seniority to get it, but I'm just trying to move. And it was, I was shocked how many jobs I got when people had more seniority, but they didn't want that job because they'd say stuff like, "You don't work over there. That's a hard job." McGee, you don't work down there. It's too hot. McGee, you don't work down there. You know who the foreman is. My God, he's mean as the devil himself. And they always had an excuse for why they didn't want to move up the food chain. And I didn't realize humans were that lazy or, or that unmotivated. I said, I have a lot of hobbies. Work's not one of them. I work for cash. Now, you can make a bumper sticker out of that if you want. Well, I finally moved up and became a furnace operator. Furnace operators, they're on four of them. They made I'm making less than $4 an hour. They made over $8 an hour. They're the senior guys. It's a great job, but it's hot, molten aluminum, like sitting on a volcano down there and it's hot and sweat bullets and and so nobody wanted to work down there. Well, I didn't. So I realized I read the union manual that you had to promote from within the department. There's only, there's only six people in that department, a janitor, four operators, and a foreman. Foreman got promoted to sales. They moved to the operator to foreman. And I knew that if you're a janitor, you get promoted to an operator. Well, I realized that, so I went and bid on the janitor's job. I took almost a half a dollar cut in pay from running my stranders. And I went down there and became a janitor in the milk cast. And I signed up. People go, hey, McGee, you better do something. Somebody signed your name up for the blankie-to-blank job. You know what they call it, for the blank- get a blank job down there as a janitor man you better get your name off that and i said no i signed it dear god you want to be a janitor yeah i do and i didn't tell them why don't ever keep your stuff to yourself (laughs) don't blab everything you know dear lord have mercy yep i want to be a janitor i like that job down there and so they made fun of me told stories wrote my name on the bathroom window about stuff that you can't repeat in church Well, so I got that job because they fired the janitor. He was lazy and he was smoking dope behind the building, and they hired me. Well, I get to go to the dump twice a day, and that was fun because you get to throw those big fluorescent lights. They're like spears. Like Star Wars, before Star Wars. I love throwing those things away. So I emptied cleaned the toilets, emptied the trash, went through the thing, helped them up there, load those big sides up for them for the operators to run. Well, they made the foreman, uh, uh, the operator foreman, that there's an opening. Well, several guys in the the whole plant bid on that job. Well, I bid on them. Well, they gave it to another guy i went down to the union that evening. i said he can't get that job that's my job you haven't been here long enough mcgee no that's my job you have to promote from within the department it's in your union manual no i didn't yes it is and i opened the page page i remember page 28 i remember no you have to promote within the department the only other thing in that department is janet that's my job and they got mad they cussed a little bit and said we'll get back with it sure enough the next day they came and they were they cussed me he blankety blank i can't believe you're so stinking lucky you're so by God's and they cussed me no i'm not lucky i've been praying Read your Bible. everything. you go. 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 I learned that in Sunday school. Anyhow, I got up there and they finally stopped flipping me off and cussing me and writing names in my car. Really, they did. They got kind of nice after a while because I said, My God, Mickey, you sure got lucky. No, I read the manual. You know, you pay duties, read the manual. And so I'm that, and I'm up there and I'm up there for a the few months and I realized there's a guy walking back and forth every night and he's coming by and he's got a white shirt and clean pants. He carries a clipboard. He's never sweating. Everybody in this plant sweats. It's hot. And I thought, how come he's not sweating? He never sweats. And I asked the former one, who's that guy that comes by every night not sweating? He said, well, that's a lab technician. Lab technician, how come he doesn't sweat? Works in the lab. I said, what do you mean works in the lab? Is it air conditioned? Oh, yeah. You mean there's a job down here that's air conditioned? Does he make more money than we do? He said, yeah, he's a lab technician. You've got to have a degree in metallurgy to be a lab technician. I said, what's a metallurgy? What's that? What's, you got to study metals? you got to go to college. So I'll go down to the unemployment office in front of the big plant the next day. By the way, they make moon pies there today. The home of the of the moon pie is that plant. And so i go down to the office. And I said, I, I, how do you get to be a lab technician? And this is a receptionist. She doesn't know anything. She's a receptionist. Hey, how do you get to be a lab technician? She said, well, you got to take a test. Well, when do you give tests? Well, we're giving one next Thursday. I said, can I take it? She said, well, uh, I guess. But you'll probably need to sign up. And she had a clipboard, and there were seventeen names typed up on it. They're going to take this test. She pulled out of a file, so well, I guess you can sign your name. I signed my name. Number I wrote eighteen. Joe McGee signed my name. Well, somebody saw it handwritten, they went and retyped it so that made it look official. The next Thursday, I get off work at three o'clock. I go down to the employment office at four o'clock for Olin Matson. I walk in. Everybody's in there with a coat and tie. These are college graduates, the coat and ties, the degrees in metallurgy. I walk in. The guy giving them the test. and can I help you? Because I've been sweating. I've been on that big hot furnace all day. My clothes are white with salt and sweat. I said, I'm here to take the test to be a lab technician. He said, I don't think so. I said, Yes, I am. I'm Joe McGee. And he's looked and sure enough, my name's on the list and it's been typed. Well, I guess you are. We'll have a see. And so I remember they handed me the test, and I sit down, of course, they handed me the test. Well, it's on metallurgy. I don't know what metallurgy is. It's about using a micrometer. I can't spell micrometer. We didn't have any micrometers in my high school. We had some wood and some welders and micrometers. And so I'm looking at it. So there's a hundred questions you answer them A B C D, A, B, C D. You get choices. So I'm looking, I look at the question one, question two, question twelve, question forty, like I'm just reading. I'm reading Greek. I don't know what this is. Well, guys are taking the test. College graduates are taking the test. I said, oh, shoot, got to do something. So I went up to A. I went number 1A, number 2B, number 3C, number 4D, number 5A, number 6B, number 7C, number 8D. I, and I took the test, and I so I got up 25 minutes later, and I went up and I handed it in. Well, everybody's looking at me. Like, My God, he's a genius. <laughs> so two weeks later... I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. You're going to have the greatest year of your life in Jesus' name. You have not wasted your time coming to church. God's word is going to bear fruit in your life. You're going to have opportunities you've never had before this year in Jesus' name. God needs you blessed so you can be a blessing. We've got a lost and dying world that needs our finances, but you've got to get them first. Oh, Father. Two weeks later, I'm working the furnace on day shift. Foreman, Mr. Ratt, he comes in. McGee, what'd you do? And it's nuts. What? What'd you do? They want you do on the lab? What'd you do? Oh, I took a test be a lab technician. You ain't your blankety-blank, get down there and get that taken care of. So I go down to the lab. I'm, I'm hurrying. I go down to the lab. I walk in. Oh, my God, I loved it. I'd never been in. It was heaven. It's immaculate, white. It's air-conditioned, stainless steel. The floors you could eat off of. Whoa. They played classical music in there. We didn't hear classical music in the plan. There's five different country stations playing. We're boot, boot scooting. And so we're eating that nasty pineapple and cream cheese sandwiches out of the machine. They're eating corned beef on rye. rod and listen to classical music. They're playing a game called Cribbage. Cribbage? Is it cabbage? No, it's Cribbage. I never heard of Cribbage. I thought, my God, I've gone to heaven. And so I walk in and see Redline. He's the, uh, he was the chemical engineer for Ola at that time. Crew cut haircut, smoked a lime green pipe. Uh, he helped develop the heat shields for the space shuttle before there was a space shuttle. Very brilliant man. He, he said, sit down, Joe, because I'm sweating. I've got my old blue, nasty, skanky thing, and I've sweat white on it, and he's puffing that pipe. He said, uh, why do you want to be a lab technician? I said, well, I have a lot of hobbies. Work's not one of them. Uh, I want to make money. And so I hear you make money than we do out there, plus uh, the air conditioning here. You're eating that corned beef on rye and listening to classical music. I don't understand it, but I sure do like it. He said, you know, you weren't supposed to take this test. I said, I wasn't. No, Joe, you you need a degree in metallurgy to take this test. He said, do uh, you know what you scored on this test? I said, no, I guessed at everything. I figure I got a 50-50 chance of getting 50. <laughs> now, I wasn't trying to be arrogant. I'm just trying to ease the tension here because I, I don't know what's going on. I'm praying, and who knows? <laughs> He said, you scored a nine. <laughs> now, I didn't even get it. It didn't even dawn. I thought, because I'm used to being rounded up, because I wasn't very good in school. I thought, maybe they rounded it up. Nine. Nine. He said, yes, out of 100, you got nine. <laughs> he said, jo- don't, don't ever gamble. You're, you're not any good at it. He said, uh, I'm looking over your personnel file, which he had to get to do the interview. He didn't know who I was. He said, are you not happy working here at this plant? I've been there three and a half years. I said, I love working this plant. Said, Why do you keep moving around? And because every job I took paid a dime more than the last job I had. I have a lot of hobbies, and work's not one of them. I'm working for cash. He said, Well, I got a problem. The uh, plant manager's on to me because the uh, floor blue collar guys don't like our white collar lab guys, and our white collar lab guys are rude to the blue collar guys, and I got a liaison problem. Plant manager's been on me, and I've got to thinking, You've run everything out there. you got a good reference from all the foreman's they all seem to like you. I was thinking, might we do? We might do an experiment with you. Would you be willing to come into the lab for three months? Let us teach you how to run all the machinery in here. Now, we're not going to teach you the formulas. I don't think you can learn it. <laughs> you arrogant. I did learn them by the way. Anyhow, but if you're willing to come and learn this, then we'd like to bring you in here and make you a liaison between the lab and the people on the floor because you seem to get along with everybody. Would you be willing to do that? Now, the first words out of my mouth was, I said, will I get a white shirt and some blue pants? My wife would be impressed if I went to work in a white shirt and some blue pants. He's puffing that pipe. And he said, "Don't push this, Joe. Don't push this." But I did. I got me a white shirt and some blue pants. Three months later, I became the first non-degree lab technician they've ever hired. Uh, there's three of us on every, every shift. It took two days working on shift to realize there was a senior lab technician. And I didn't know why. He, I do the same thing he does. I said, "What makes you the senior lab technician?" Well, because I'm the senior on the ship. Why? I can do everything you do. He said, "Well, it's because I can run the quantometer." The what? The quantometer, that's an amazing machine. So there's only two in the state of Tennessee at that time, one at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, one here. Quantometer takes a, a, a laser rod, and it burns a laser shot into a, a – You cut a piece of this big aluminum and you burn that thing with that laser, shot and it measures how much you know manganese and silicon and all the stuff that's in there, and then it reads it on this big machine. I thought, man, this this can't be rocket science. If you can read that, I can read that. So I'd stay over every shift. I'd stay over for about an hour. I'd watch them do the testing because you always test at the beginning of every shift. I'd watch them. So for several months, I just stay and watch. How do you run that thing? How'd you do it? What does that number mean? Why'd you write that down? How do you burn that? You have to sharpen that every time. So how long does it burn? I'm just asking. So. A senior lab technician's job came up four months later, and I went to Mr. Radon and said, I want that job. Joe, you can't have that job. You, you don't have a degree in metallurgy. You can't run the quantum. And I said, Yes, I can. No, you can't, Joe. I said, Yes, I can. Come watch me. Well, he did. He gave me an hour. He made me test that thing, and I burned samples, and I read it off perfect. He just grinned and said, I'll get back with you. So I became the first non-degreed senior lab technician I ever had. Had I not been there as a senior lab technician, I would have not met Bill Clark, who told me I was going to hell because I didn't you know, lay hands on the sick and pray in tongues. You remember that story. Had I not met him, I wouldn't be in ministry today. He's the one that hired me as an engineer in Sykes, Missouri. And sent me back to night school to get my degree to become an engineer. If you don't start moving, doors don't open. If you're waiting on something, people, all time they say this, well, I'm waiting on God. No, you're not. God's waiting on you. God's sitting down. <laughs> it's in Revelation. He's sitting there. Angels are flapping wings. They're singing to him. <laughs> He's waiting on you. Get up and start moving. Get your vision. Make your plan. Get your budget. Scare the snot out of yourself. Oh my God, how is that ever going to happen? Well, it will because God is a miracle-working God. Joseph ended up running the most powerful nation on the planet after 20 years. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ended up running the most powerful nation on the planet after being made slaves. God is the miracle-working, profiting, blessing business if we'll trust him. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that sets us free and keeps us free. This year, I commit our lives into your hands. And I declare by faith tonight that Jesus Christ is Lord over every family, over every individual here tonight. He's Lord over me, my wife, my six kids, our ministry, our business. He's Lord over this church, over these people, Lord. We confess the Lordship of Jesus. And Father, I thank you because you're Lord. You're gonna order our steps, direct our paths, guide us into all truth, show us things to come. Talk to us when we go to sleep and when we wake up. You're going to surround us with a shield of divine favor. People are going to begin to look at us with a new set of eyes. Every need has already been met. We are your sheep. You are our shepherd. We hear your voice. The voice of a stranger we will not follow. Everything we set our hand to prospers. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Greatest prayer you'll ever pray over yourself is Psalms thirty-four, eleven, which says this. Father, I give you permission to teach me and my family to fear you. For the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Psalms 112, verse 1 through verse 5. That wisdom will bring a long life, riches, and honor. You want long life, riches, and honor? Greatest prayer you ever pray for yourself or your family. I pray it every night and every morning. I'll, I'll pray it tonight. We're going to make it to Jackson, Tennessee tonight. I'll lay my head down there after I kiss Denise, and I'll say, "Father, I thank you for teaching Sarah, Jessica, tested Denise. Now I, I thank you for teaching us to fear you. For the fear of God the beginning of wisdom. With that wisdom comes long life, riches, and honor. I say, thank you, Father. I'm going to sleep, and God gives his beloved sweet sleep. Give the Lord a hand clap. Amen.